The following episode of Afternoon Delight features conversation on sexual assault and suicide. If you have at any point been affected by sexual assault or rape, the Rape Crisis are free to contact on 0808-802-9999. If you have been affected by suicide at any point, you can contact the Samaritans 24-7 on 116-123. Thank you. Welcome to Afternoon Delight. Real people, real stories, a local podcast for local artists. Hello everyone, it's me, Jory Delight, and welcome back to Afternoon Delight. What an interesting couple of weeks I've had. I'm not sure if you all feel this way, but it's been quite a stoter of a couple of weeks. Um, we just did our March Madness show for House of Liability, and I mean, that was literally the best way to encapsulate kind of how the month had been. Jesus Christ, so intense. So much happening in the last few weeks, and, and so many good things happening. You know, a roadmap was issued in Scotland, looking like normality might be back by August, which is what we kind of expected with that horrific June 21st um, suggestion for um, England and stuff in the UK. Like, you know, none of us really kind of bought that. But it's really interesting because literally... Um, we've got now a roadmap, and I think that's so great. And that really is apt for now the season of Afternoon Delight we're doing because I take a few weeks to recharge my batteries, and I'm doing my episode this week because next week and this week I'm rehearsing with NTS, which is so exciting. I'm dropping a video with them, and I can't wait till you all see it. So it took a few weeks just to kind of de-stress, recharge my batteries because... Every interview for Afternoon Delight can be such a thrill and such an amazing, um, an amazing interview and episode, but sometimes a lot of these things can trigger people or they just genuinely find them quite difficult. And I am the same that I, I empathise with people so, so much every time they come on and have so much in common with them. But other things I do find really difficult is just if I'm triggered and I think, oh God, okay, I can relate to you, but also I'm getting into that physical response of trauma. And um, yeah, like particularly the eating disorder episode where I was talking in depth with Katie about um, eating disorders. I was like, right, I need a few days just to process that, put that out there. And you know, I'm really glad that I did that for two weeks because the episode I'm going to be doing with you today we are doing a season, probably just eight episodes, I reckon, for this season. Um, but we'll see. You know, I'll, I'll let you all know because I want this episode and the whole season, season three, to feel very much authentic to a select few people that are bringing a reason and a glimmer of hope. And the whole point of this like, season is hope. And we want to ask every guest, is there one moment of hope that they think of that gave them that sense of, okay, I have either hit rock bottom and I can go up from here, or I have got one thing that I fix it on that gets me through the day. But hope can be many things, but it is 
one of the only things I think sometimes it gets us through things. And I'm going to talk, funnily enough, about two things in this episode, right? My moment of hope, pre-pandemic, I might add, why my one moment of hope and my rock bottom moment that set my boundary and I knew, right, this is you hit rock bottom and you need to evolve. Two moments actually that really changed my life completely pre-pandemic that have got me through the pandemic. And one of the things I'm going to talk about, I've never shared on my social media or my work. So bear with me if this gets quite intense and bear with me if I get emotional. And I have put at the beginning of the episodes, as you'll have heard, the mention of suicide. And I want everyone to know that, you know, if you can't listen to this throughout any point and you go have to turn this off, do it. I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but if you are really comfortable in your skin and want to listen, then please continue to listen because I think this could help a lot of people, but I'm just aware that it might be too much. So throughout the pandemic, I have been, funnily enough, right, dating. A lot of people, in fact, quite a few actually on Twitter um, in January had kind of you know, started on me or, I wouldn't have said it was trolling, but it got to the point that I thought, mm, right, summer. A lot of people didn't understand what, how I was dating or why I was dating. Now, obviously with living on my own, I was able to bubble with people. Sadly, a friend and I fell out in January over that because I was at one point getting back with a guy I had dated years ago to like start dating him. And that was the situation with the bubbling was I had to kind of, in order for me and him to go out, I had to kind of say, well, actually, he needs to bowl with me. And sadly, you know, friendships come and go. And that was kind of one of the huge things with that was that I realized I was at a point in my life that I want a relationship and my relationship would have to come first. You know, I come first in my house. I'm like, I come first, he will come second or they will come second. And friends and family, you know, follow from that. So I was dating quite a lot and going for walking dates. And that guy, um, it didn't end up working out, which was so ironic after literally a day. <laughs> um, and that doesn't surprise me because, you know, it's been three years since I've seen him, but literally nothing had changed. <laughs> so... I kept going on walking dates. I was on Tinder, I was on Grindr, I was rinsing them. Uh, and I was going for a walking date so safely because I thought, I'm not letting you in my house, you didn't get me. Um, I kept going on Grindr to actually meet people, but they kept asking if they could come to my house like for a ride. And I'd be like, yeah, we're in a pandemic. Why are you trying to have sex with people? Um, so it's so funny because I spent between the end of December pursuing a guy first who I really fancied who I'd worked with, who um, I thought, we were maybe potentially going to be dating um, with the way the vibe was going and we had so much in common. I felt like we were spiritually... You know, it's, it's very hard to meet somebody and find that natural click. And I don't mean that infatuation click. I mean that you don't need to explain things to each other. You understand each other without an explanation. And I just thought, that's, that's really rare. But I'd asked him out, and he said no. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, okay. Um, and we agreed to stay friends, because we have a lot in common. He's great, he's a DJ. And I was like, right, cool, no problem. Um, 
so then after that, I was like, you know, going on casual walking dates, and I got back with that guy. That was interesting, obviously. And I kept getting rejected every time. You know, I'd go on a date with one of them, and he'd messaged me, like, a few days later, saying, oh, he was sorry he'd gotten busy, the pandemic. And I was like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. But I did think to myself, if I'm not that bothered about him not texting me, I clearly wasn't actually that into him either. But the amount of times I was chatting to guys and I'd get rejected, like, you know, oh, I went on the walking date and they'd be like, oh, I'm not into you. And I'd be like, oh, OK. And I kept feeling like I was getting destroyed by it. I really kind of went, God, this hits you, doesn't it, in the stomach? Like, every time someone says to you, oh, I'm not interested, you're like, oh, you've not validated me, I feel ugly. So I genuinely was so happy at this point in my life after reading the infamous um, Keeping Love You If I Ever Have Hendrix that I knew what I needed, I knew what my expectation was, and I knew who I wanted. And I kept meeting someone, and I was like, I've not met my equal, I've not met my partner, you know. And a lot of the times I have in my relationships in the past, I'm now writing a play about it, um, about, like, sort of Zodiac lovers and stuff that I've mentioned in the past, but I actually am writing it now. And the amount of times that I was always with someone who wanted me to basically just be their mother and take care of them, and I wanted them to be, like, my dad, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so daddy issues, but at the same point, not intentional, it's just what I'm missing. And I won't spoil the book, but actually the book totally explains all that when you do read it and you go, oh, shit. So I kind of ended up, last week, I was chatting to this guy who I really liked, and I thought, oh, God, finally... I went, he's not my type, but that could be a good thing because so far I have made horrific decisions. And he patched me. We exchanged numbers, we were texting, and then he just stopped replying. And I thought to myself, God, I've just turned 26, and I feel like I'm in 16 or 17 in high school right now. Like, there was someone I chatted to in February who was so sweet, but they were just too young for me. And they were like, do you have Snapchat? And I was like, no, I'm like 26. <laughs> and when I told them, I went, you're just too young for me, I'm so sorry, but I don't like patching people. They were so lovely and said, oh no, darling, that's absolutely fine, I understand, thank you, let me know. It just doesn't take much, does it? But there is a point to this, right? And this is going to now take us back to 2019. So 2019, I was in a really bad place for majority of that year. When I did my documentary that, funnily enough, recently went back on iPlayer, and I thought, what, why is it back on iPlayer? And it's because the contract finishes in April, so they've chucked it back on. So, you know, Jory 65 Reasons still on iPlayer. Check it out. Haha. <laughs> um, I watched it, and I didn't recognise myself. And although, in ways... I love the fact that, you know, I had a documentary that was 26 minutes. It was all about me and my life. It was incredible to have that in 2019 when it went out in the April. It was, it was such an odd experience that the moment that came out, things really started to go downhill. And I thought to myself, why? And behind the scenes in the documentary, people wouldn't realise that I was going to Newcastle to find out in the January if I was going to need lung transplant. And they said, yeah, I did need it, but they didn't know when. I also had broke up with someone that really wasn't good for me, but I actually genuinely like was in love with him. And I've never said that before, but I actually was in love with him. So you can imagine how hard that was to be in love with somebody that's not good for you in any way, and you dim your light for them. And I thought to myself, 
Jesus Christ, I've found out I need a lung transplant and I've got the guy I wanted to be with doesn't want to be with me and isn't good for me. Oh, for fuck's sake. I just was a mess, right? And then this documentary comes out months later in April that's a glimmer of hope for everyone because, you know, I'm like, well, I'm, I've got this illness and things aren't going well, but, you know, always look on the bright side of life as the Monty Python boys say. And, and I found myself watching the movie Sliding Doors literally all the time because in Sliding Doors, it's a Sliding Doors effect of what if and how one little small synchronised moment can change your whole life. So I became obsessed with that for ages. My psychologist, when I kept saying, I just think I maybe shouldn't have broke up with him, but at the same point, he wasn't good for me. She'd go, but it's a sliding doors effect. And I was like, what a good movie and analogy. You're so right. So come summer 2019, I got so drunk on a night out to the point that I went on a massive bender. And I'll be honest, I wasn't well was constantly needing antibiotics. So when I was well, I was taking drugs, drinking, just having an absolute nightmare of a time, really making a fucking mess of myself. And I went to an after party and he phoned me. And I let him come to the after party and then we went back to mine and we had sex. And I... let him do it unprotected because I was that determined to get back with him and I knew that that might help and I thought to myself what the fuck am I doing playing these games but I was and then he went home and then two days later because I was still on a buzz I was still um, drunk and I just was away with the fairies I wasn't really paying attention I was half asleep for like two days I'd got a message from him saying he felt like he took advantage and he didn't know how he felt about me and I was like oh, I thought we agreed it was just a one-night stand. But then, I'm one of these people that it takes a while for me to process things. So two days later, I went, shit, I do still want to be with him. I am still in love with him. Why have I done this? But then I had to move house. (laughs) So I was moving house that week and thought, oh, for fuck's sake, why is this my life? So I went to hospital. And I went to hospital, and he had phoned me drunk, and I was like, hon, I'm in hospital. Again, needing antibiotics, always ill. This is literally just, the re- every five weeks, this was happening. And he was, oh, you're ill, I'm so sorry, blah, blah. And I was like, no, you're drunk on a Friday night texting me. You're not texting me during the day. You're texting me, like, steaming. And I moved house, and then I came home, and then I was dealing with a fucking landlord trying to charge me £1,500. But you know what? We're not even, we're not even going into that because it was all dealt with, and uh, I got my deposit back because they were full of shit. But I moved flat. Now then, this is where this gets really interesting, Right? And please bear with me on this because I do not want this to come across in any way like uh, I wasn't grateful and woe is me, my life is so difficult. But I just think I need to emphasise to you all how really bad I actually was mentally, okay? I got asked to be interviewed for BBC Radio because the Edinburgh International Festival were giving me money to study at uni and do my MA, which I then ended up getting, right? And the reason I'm bringing that up is because literally this week I did a radio interview about the same thing and I got a bit triggered and I thought, oh, and then I thought, this is what I need to talk about in this episode. So I sat whilst my mum and family, because at this point I was so frail, there was no point in me lifting boxes, my lung function was so bad, I was so underweight, I just wasn't able to help. 
So, you know, their attitude was, you go and do what you need to and what you can, and we'll do, like, you know, the move and the handling. I paid for everything. That was just the easy solution. So I went, and I sat and did this radio interview, and I just slept with him the week before, and I just thought, oh, God, what am I doing? Hadn't even spoken to him yet about that. I was still not, not, I'm very much a fearful avoidant, and reading attachment books helped me realise that, and I went, right, I'll just deal with it later. It doesn't matter. Maybe we'll get drunk and we'll talk about it one day. And I went and gave this interview, and she said to me, this beautiful um, reporter said to me, no, Ian McKellen is funding you to go to uni, and you're an ex-Leaf student. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's so great, yeah. She goes, I have a feeling you might be the next Ian McKellen of your generation, Jordy. you just wait. And I went, thank you so much, that's amazing. And I walked out that interview, and I went to the Starbucks next tip. And I got a Starbucks, and I sat at the table, and I thought to myself, nothing is going to make me happy. I feel horrific. I don't like who I am. I don't like what I'm doing with my life. I don't have the best relationship with my family that I could have. I am codependent on my flatmate far too much. The guy I want to be with won't treat me right and doesn't want me. And I've just gave a radio interview telling everyone I'm so excited for what the future holds. And all I keep thinking is, I've got to get this lung transplant and I literally don't want it. I actually just don't want it. I don't feel mentally ready or physically ready to go through this. I just didn't because a lot had happened to me outside of having CF. But the main focus on this is actually the lung transplant. So picture that. I'm in that radio interview that everyone's like, Jordy, you're so amazing. Blah, blah. And yeah, I was, I was doing great things, but we have got that in the arts. And I've spoken about this loads that sometimes we do things to boost our ego and not because we want to do it. And our intention is wrong. And I put my hand up. I was doing things like that to make me feel like I had a purpose, to make me have a lasting impact. Because a lot of the things I would say in therapy to my therapist was, I hope that people will remember me because I kept thinking I was going to die soon. She was like, of course people will remember you. And I was like, no, they won't. Everyone will forget me. Because, you know, I had been abandoned by my dad dying and I had to take care of myself from a very young age so my mum could work to pay the mortgage because we were in a single family where my dad will lift her nothing. And I sat in that Starbucks and I just thought, nothing's going to make me happy. And I phoned my flatmate, phoned me and went, how's it going? And my mum, bless her, like, unfortunately, she's just one of the people that, you know, she, I said, she, she went on the phone and I said how it went. She went, right, but when are you coming back? Because we need all this done. And it just, she doesn't mean it. But I think she was very, at a, we're doing this now, we'll deal with that later. But she didn't realise how mentally ill I was because I just, I just didn't want people to know. And my flatmate was like, how did the interview go? And I went, yeah, it was fine. And she goes, it was fine. What do you mean? And I was like sitting there in the Starbucks like, I don't think anything's going to make me happy, Alana. And she was like, what? And I was like, I've just done that interview. And I absolutely feel nothing. I'm sitting in the Starbucks numb, drinking this coffee, worrying about going to hospital next week, worrying about if I'll sleep with him drunk again, and thinking... I hate who I am right now. And she was like, oh my God, right. Well, we'll talk about this later. And I went, okay. So then I became obsessed with this fucking song by Madonna called Dress You Up. 
right? People have special interests. My friend um, Henry Crybaby, he always goes on about special interests and how they can help you cope with things. So I became obsessed with Madonna's Dress You Up. I don't know what it was, but I watched the music video and it was when she did this huge glamorous intro going do 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 and the room the audience erupted for her and I thought oh that for me is like the standard the bar no the singing no offense Madge love you but um, a bit questionable but that is why I'm in singing lessons but seeing her just evoke that confidence as a woman because I'd said to my bubble at the weekend Women have always inspired me before men because I think there's such a patriarchal society that when women inspire me, it's because they are themselves. And I've just always shared Madonna Whitney um, been inspired. And Madonna herself, as you know, talked about the fact that she was brutally raped and nearly killed. And I go, but she does it with such a, that happened and that was my moment to go, okay, this nearly, ha like partly happened and nearly happened and I'm not going to let it ruin me. And I thought... Oh, that's it, that's it. And I've talked about sexual assault before. So this is where it gets interesting. I'd seen a show in the Fringe after that radio interview, and it was um, Jock Tamsin's Bairns by Civil Disobedience, and they were all singing Dress Up by Madonna. But I'm sitting there thinking to myself, oh, God, I'm still in love with him. Like, I, I'm still, I just keep thinking about him for no reason. And I thought, for fuck's sake, Jordy, why, why? Why? And then I kept thinking about Dress You Up, the song, because they sung it. So then I'd watch the music video, and then I became obsessed with the idea of, I just need to be that. I need to be that confident and happy. It doesn't matter if it's singing on stage, if it's giving a talk at, like, a life coach convention. I need, I need to be that content at that age. And she was only one year older than me. And I went, right, okay. So I had moved flat, and then... I'd stayed that night in my first flat and I said, yeah, okay, this is the flat I'm going to be in for nearly the rest of my life. It's beautiful. And a week later, I had texted him. I just did it sober. And he'd said, oh, he was moving flat too. And I went, oh. And it was so funny because he used to live halfway between my now flat and my old flat. And now he stays on the other end of my old flat. It was literally as if we were kind of two ships in the night passing by, but literally we're like still fucking neighbours essentially. And I had I said, you know what, I, I need to do this. And I was so, so scared, right? But I texted him this huge, really nice thing. And I'll be honest, that guy in the past would be quite gaslighty that I'd send a text and I was upset and he'd go, right, when are you coming round? And just not even entertain it. And I'd think why are you not validating me? Or why are you not creating this narrative and letting this happen naturally? Why are you just choosing parts of it for yourself? I, I don't like this. So he, I texted him this, and he say, I said to him, are you busy working? He said, no, I'm moving flat, why? And I said, oh, I'm going to send you something, but just take your time reading it, please. So I sent him this huge thing about, I just feel like, Things maybe didn't go right before, but where's the second option? We just slept together, and ever since I can't stop thinking about you, blah, blah. This lovely message that I'd, I mean, I spent, I am the most, one of the most confident people at times. Everyone goes, oh, Jordy, you're so charismatic, you're confident, you're, you're so, you empower that sort of um, confidence I wish I had. And I go, yeah, of course, hon, for friends, family, and work, but when it comes to relationships, you've no idea what I'm like, right? And I sat for fucking hours retyping, rewriting, voice noting, deleting, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. So I did it and I told Alana and she sat and do you know what, I'll give her a juice, one of my best friends, she 
She never really was standing the relationship. She wasn't. But she said, okay, if that is what you want to do, I am so behind you, and I hope you get what you need from this. And I went, right, cool. And it was so interesting because I'd thought to myself, right, I saw a text, and he said, right, I'm moving the flat, I'll, I'll text later once I've absorbed this. And I said, oh, that's good. He never would have been like that, right? So he takes me back five bullet-pointed reasons not to go out with me. Not just, oh, I, I just, I'm seeing someone, so no, sorry. I'd have been like, all right, okay, fuck, we shouldn't have had sex drunk, but it's fine. Or, no, no, I don't have a relationship. Or, no, hon, like, you know, you, I think you need someone that can give you what you need. I got five bullet-pointed reasons why I was not good enough. Now, I, I can understand that some people just don't deal with these things properly. He didn't deal with it well when I told him I was being transplant. He didn't deal with a lot of things well. He's just, and he wasn't the one for me. He taught me so much. And on the Mandy show with Mandy, um, Raynard, I had said to her, you know, like, if I hadn't met him, I wouldn't have dealt with my dad's death. So I think I'm glad I met him and I'm glad it happened. But at the same time, there's so many things I haven't talked about. And this is what I am going to share with you that none of you would have known apart from a select few. And I mean, the select few friends didn't find out at the time for about a couple of months. They all didn't deal with it well. My family don't even know about this. But I then was like, right, okay, he doesn't want to be with me. He has sent me five bullet point reasons I am not good enough. One of which was he was dating someone else. One of which was that I had hurt him the way I threw him away after the transplant. And I just thought to myself, oh, Charlie Hyde's like, pick one. I remember saying to friends and they'd laugh, but I was like using humor to cope. But I thought, no, I'm not being funny though. Like a bullet pointed list of reasons you don't want to date someone was just really nasty and vicious. And I thought, that just doesn't sit with me. That's really horrific. So I just said, okay, fine, let me know. Because I'm a fearful avoidant with these things and I'm not now I try to make sure I don't do it. But back then I just went, right, okay, fine. And that was August. And then we got to September and I made the bold choice to go on the BBC Nine and talk about my sexual assault. And I was like, yeah, cool, okay, doke. That, uh, I'm here to do that, right? Now, I was glad I did it. I think the makeup was questionable. Thank God um, I've elevated that. But that's what get, you get when you do your makeup on a, in a taxi on, to Glasgow. But I was so proud I did talk about the sexual assault and, and sort of managed to navigate that, right? So I did that, and I did it to raise awareness, but I also thought, well, this will help me. And I don't know if it did. I can't, I can't work out if it did. Because I would be lying if I didn't say that I partly maybe did that, hoping he would see that, and I would get that romanticised Carrie Bradshaw moment where I go, uh, I just saw you on the telly, and I do love you, blah, blah. I don't think it was necessarily the intention at the beginning, absolutely not. When I got messages like, hello, there's this campaign for people that have been sexually assaulted, would you like to speak? And I thought, yes, I want to help people. That was my intention. But then I ended up slowly becoming fixated on this idea, maybe that would help. And it didn't. And I didn't hear from him at all. And I'd went to see a drag show um, in Edinburgh that my friend at the time was doing. And it was great. 
It was really great. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm so bitter. I'm so resentful. Not of them, not the, their show. I was bitter that I wasn't well enough to stand at the front and, you know, just engage with the performances, get into it. I, I wasn't well enough. And I thought, I'm sitting at the side and everyone will maybe consider, oh, I think I'm better than standing. So, and I know that if they knew me, they'd go, no, Jordi has CF, maybe they're not well. Nine out of 10, but there would have been a select few that thought, oh, they're a bit full of themselves sitting there. Like, why are they not coming and engaging? And I got so drunk. And then I saw who was my best friend for years and thought, and I will be honest, like, I'm not, this is no malicious reason to say this, but she walked out on me when I needed her the most. And that was that sort of sign moment that I thought, this was not the right time for you to decide you couldn't be my friend, but fine, at least I know now before I was on a list and waiting and you decided at last minute you wanted to patch me for someone else or this. I, I, and I've spoken to her since, and we've just agreed, you know, look, these things happen and we're not hating on each other. But, you know, I then saw her that night and you've got to understand in my mentally ill head at the time, the guy I wanted to be with has now severely rejected me, told me a bullet fucking pointed reason why I'm not good enough. He hasn't spoken to me since. I've seen him on night suit when I've been DJing and... It's just completely blanked me or made me feel uncomfortable because that is just unfortunate. I think that you're always like that in the queer community in any nightclub that you feel uncomfortable because you see people you fucking date every week if you're not going out with them because there's only small, there's two venues in Edinburgh um, that are nightclubs. So this was all going on. I was ill every five weeks needing antibiotics. I was needing transplant. It kept getting worse and worse. Every single week I got an infection or a month, I went, it's just getting worse. And my friends knew, they wouldn't say to me, oh, I, I know you're ill, because I didn't want to admit it. I had gotten a routine because I was such a control freak, and I'm not anymore, I'm just a free spirit now, but back then I was such a control freak that it was a, we don't talk about this until I'm in hospital, then we'll talk about it. And then when I'm at hospital, we're not talking about it, I'm well now. And that would have been my mindset, and unintentionally, and they went with it because they were my... My gals, my guys and my non-binaries taking care of me, supporting me. But I really wasn't coping. And I know that Alana will probably listen to this and she'll be sitting thinking, fucking hell, because she would be, she saw it all the time. The amount of times I would just go night suit, get absolutely fucked up, come home, sleep for two days and then go to hospital and then complain I'd, I was getting ill, but she'd be sitting thinking, well, why are you wasting these days doing this? Like, she never said it to me, but I know she would be thinking it. And then she's just such an amazing friend that she just ended up tidying the house all the time for me and being my mother because what else? It was like we were married, but I wasn't uh, sleeping with her, basically, which is just a marriage, actually, when you think about it. But she knew. She knew when I got that bullet point reason that this would send me spiralling, and it did. And I think it took about five or six weeks. And then I got this residence with Imagina and Birds of Paradise that was so, so important, so good. Um, but it was difficult because then we're talking about Section 28 and all these things that the queer community had done to them. And I'm thinking, I dated someone who literally supported this shit. 
like, fuck me and my work. I want to sit and say, oh, well, I, I feel this way and blah, blah. But I'm ta- I want to be with someone that does, like, what? So, so the night I went to that show and my friend Lena was here. Um, she's also a drag queen, but she was here. And Alana, we all went to it. We had a great night. I came home and I was really drunk. And I don't know what happened. I just don't know why out of my whole life. I don't know why I did this, but I was on a prescription for diazepam for my anxiety because I was on over oxygen. And that was another thing that happened that I thought I am dying now because I'm on over oxygen, which isn't true because there's people that are living fit every day that go on over oxygen because they've just got breathing issues. But I was on that, so I was on anti-anxiety medication to help me sleep because I've never had good sleep, as you all know, listening to Afternoon Dinner all the time. And I sat, and we came home, and they went to bed, you know, they went to sleep. I think it would have been three in the morning. And I tried to overdose. I took nearly the whole packet of my diazepam, and I didn't know what it would do, but I hoped that my oxygen would drop and then I would just be ill and eventually, you know, I would not, like, not wake up. I sat and thought to myself that night before I was doing this, I was so drunk, and I know they say, like, when you're drunk, you know, it's a drunk, um, a drunk mind speaks a sober heart, and I was like, well, yeah, actually, like, I genuinely, when I want, I want to kill myself, I'm, I'm, I'm over this now, I can't live, because I thought to myself, I keep giving and giving for the wrong reasons, it's to heal me, and if I heal other people, that'll heal me, and that is not true, that has been the pandemic lesson, I did learn that once I healed myself, then I could help heal other people, but I just... I sat in my room and I remember looking in my mirror wardrobe and looking and thinking, and I looked at myself, like I said, literally stood there and looked at myself and went, do you actually like yourself? Do you like what you've become? Are you even happy? And I was like, no. And I was like, do you know what? I'll just take this whole packet and fine, chug them. I would be lying if I said how many I actually remembered that I'd taken, but I did it and I, I totally dissociated. I don't remember being there. I don't remember like, it happening completely because I was so fucked. And that would have been about three in the morning. And I remember this is where this gets really spooky. So I think five o'clock, I woke up and I had a temperature. And I thought, oh, it's a bit odd. That'll be the, the pills working. I was out of it. I felt like I'd like smoked so many spliffs. I was lying there like, oh, I'm gone. I can't feel anything. I'm happy. I thought to myself, right, death is coming. And I felt not a light from above, like they say, but I genuinely felt my whole body becoming sort of like abstract and lighty and sort of like a sort of vibration. And I thought, right. And I obviously, weirdly enough, did my overnight oxygen, but put it very low because I thought slowly I'll, I'll dip out. And obviously, I'm sorry, this, this is really graphic and hard. Don't listen, just stop the episode. But I did all this. And I got years ago a fun lubrication, right? And it means you can't be sick, like you rarely can be sick, right? But I, and I came home and I'd had a drink with the stuff, I think it might have been literally a red stripe beer, and I never, 
This is where it gets so interesting. I never have bowls in my room or sick bowls anymore. Like, and at the time, I would always have one for muck. But I remember it was in the sink, washed, because the, the night before, it was covered in shit. It was minging. Um, and I had, didn't have that. And I woke up, and there was a bowl that I'd put crisps in. And I don't eat snacks for bed, but it wasn't that night. It was from an night before. And I spewed into it. And I remember turning going, I need that, picked it, spewed into it. And then I lay there. And I went, there's cold and flu max on the floor and you've got a temperature, I would take them. And I don't think that would have even fucking helped taking more medication. I thought, you've got a temperature, take them, it'll bring it down. So I took them and I lay there. And when I say this, I genuinely mean this. This is not a lie. I literally tell my bubble this at the weekend, and that's why I want to tell you so now. If you've ever seen Kill Bill, Volume 1, when she wakes up from that coma and she goes, wiggle your big toe, right? I lay in my bed, and to get that bowl up and to be sickened to it, it was like some fucking Kill Bill scene that I couldn't... My whole body, legs to arms to hands, was completely stuck. And I was like, I need to get that bowl 15 minutes it took me to get my arm over, delirious, out of it, to get that bowl and be sickened to it. And then I went, right, that's that. And I lay in bed and I went, I need to go to the toilet. I need to go to the toilet. I, I need to get up. So I got my phone with my hands again, fucking frozen, stiff, could barely move. And I text Lena on Facebook Messenger and Lena, if you're listening to this and this gets you upset, I'm so sorry but this is what happened. And I text her about seven in the morning, are you awake? Because I needed her to come through and help me sit up. And she didn't get it because she was asleep. And I text Alana, and again, she didn't get it. She was asleep. So I spent like a killball moment doing everything to get up onto my feet. And... I knew straight away, I went, I just got a hospital and I'm fine. And now I'm very ill all of a sudden and I've clearly got an infection very quickly and I've got this temperature and I'm not well. And I had looked and I'd seen my pack of diazepam that I take from my sleeping. The whole pack was empty and I was like, that was full. I got that literally a few days ago. And I thought, oh. and I didn't remember it. I had had such a psychosis moment that I didn't remember even taking it. And a lot of people would be surprised by that because they, you know, they tell me, oh, I'm so put together and, and I'm so well, but I, no, I was not with it. And it was fucking horrible to actually not remember that happening and to think to myself, what have I done? What the fuck have I done? Why have I done this myself? And all I kept thinking was, I'm not going to get a lung transplant. Because when I go into hospital today and I tell them they're going to have to tell Newcastle and they'll say you're not stable enough to get this. In a weird way, I think that was what I wanted, though. I think I wanted the easy way out. I wanted someone else to make the decision. I was too scared to say, I don't want this, I'm not ready. You know, I'd had fucking horrific things happen. Like when I was a child, when I was a teenager, when I was an adult, that I just didn't cope with that it was easier for me to fix everyone else's problems very much like my own mother actually than for me to fix my own so doing that 
in a way I thought, well, do you know what? Yeah, if they won't let me get it, then oh well, they, they've decided that that's not my problem. So I got up, I went to the toilet, I was on the toilet for ages, like my stomach was in pieces, I was like really sore, I was, had diarrhea, I like, had to take paracetamol all day because my temperature, but not too much, obviously. And I just thought to myself, have I actually tried to take my own life, even clearly unsuccessfully because I'm still here, but have I tried to take my own life? Uh, fuck, why have I done this? And I didn't tell anyone. I said to Lana, oh, I'm really not well. And she was like, you look horrific. What's happened? I, went, I don't know. And I kept saying, my stomach is so swollen. It's really sore. I think it's like appendicitis. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, I think it's appendicitis. So the next day, because I thought, I need to let this get in my system, I went to the hospital. And they were like, you're back. You just literally came last week. And I went, yeah, yeah, I'm really not well. I've got a temperature and my stomach's swollen. And they thought I had appendicitis and did all these tests. A surgeon was coming. And I lay there in that bed the whole time and kept thinking to myself, oh, this is because I've tried to do this, isn't it? Something happened. I don't know if it's just my body, my immune system. I don't know what something has happened because I've tried to do this. And I kept thinking, well, if I die, this is literally my own fault. And... I, I only myself to blame because I've gotten ill because I've done this and my, my consultant had came in and even the CF team don't know this and it's, he'd came in and was like oh Jordan you know we're really worried because this is really bad you've got this swelling you're in pain and, and we don't know what's caused it and I went yeah me too I hope it's not appendicitis surgery I can't I won't make it for surgery if that is my lung function is too low and he was like and they were panicking and I felt so guilty for months after not telling them and then they said to me, they did a scan and they were like, oh, your liver's enlarged. Like, it's really enlarged. Like, and your spleen as well. But your liver's really heavily enlarged and this is concerning. And I was like, all right, okay. And then they found out I had a virus that they were like, it's quite a common virus. But, you know, it's a side effect of, like, herpes. But that wouldn't make you this ill. Maybe it would, but I mean, that's so rare. And I kept thinking to myself, no, I know what this is. I've, I've tried to talk myself, and it's just my body's really went into fight or flight, and I've ended up ill from it. And I'm, I'm telling you all this story because that was the one moment, and I had to realise this on my own, not even in therapy. I didn't talk about this in therapy because I didn't want to because I felt guilty for so long until I literally watched the Caroline Flack documentary last week, and I was like, oh, my God, like... Because her thing that, unfortunately, her mother said was the demise was that she didn't want people to know how mentally ill she was. She wanted other people to feel happy and to be kind. And I was like, oh, my God, that was literally why I didn't tell people, because I didn't want them to feel like someone like me would do that, because then they might think, oh, well you know, they are really weak. And there's a big thing about weakness in our family and that I grew up with that, you know, you can't show people that you're weak because it will stop you doing well. And I haven't ever done that. And that moment was the biggest weakness for me. But looking back, what I find really funny and apt and interesting were those little significant things that there was a bowl there so I could be sick 
I did manage to somehow, when I was, I remember feeling paralyzed, like lying there thinking, I can't move, I can't move. Why in my body, I was telling my legs, get up, and they weren't doing it. And I went, you need to do this. You need to get up. You can't lie here. You're going to get ill from this. You need to take something for this temperature. You need to go to the toilet and get all this out of your system. Like, you need to go into hospital tomorrow. But you can't tell them. And I'd said to Lana, luckily she was off work that Monday, I went, oh, you might need to take me to hospital this evening. And she's like, that's fine. And it was when I went in and I knew about the liver, I'd just lay there and I thought, I've done this to myself, but there's nothing really I can do. And I'll be honest, like, I don't blame him for any of that happening. I really don't, because he's not, you know, I have listened to Oprah's uh, masterclass this morning before doing this interview, because I wanted sort of some, I wouldn't say inspiration for this story at all, but I wanted to sort of understand the spirituality of everything and what hope could mean. And I don't think in any way that my suicide attempt should have happened. I, I go, why did I do that? I, I, but then I go because I was that fucking depressed and feeling so down. And with this documentary, you know, I watched that and go, oh, after that, everything fell apart. That documentary did so well, but everything fell apart. And it was such a bittersweet ending after how the doc had played out. So I spent a few weeks getting drunk all the time afterwards. I mean, I couldn't believe that, that I was told my liver was enlarged and I was ill, and then I literally turn around and go, oh, well, I'm going to get back on the sesh then. Countless times I was in a bad place. I went with him um, at the time, because she doesn't do drag now, but Havana Meltdown and Amy Lamore, and we went to do Manny's football club gig. I was ill from CF. I had a meltdown. I got drunk. I went to church that I used to do at CC's, but I don't do it now because I'm not on good terms with the host, so I made an absolute idiot of myself. I saw that friend that I'd seen who had walked out on me, I saw my friends who I thought were my friends kind of not being there for me, but they've openly spoke about that and apologised. And I, I thought to myself, I feel so alone and I'm putting myself in situations where I'm not with people that are supporting me. My flatmate came and fucking got me drunk because I'd lost all my stuff that I'd taken with me. Um, I then ended up really ill in hospital with another virus. I then was going to Priscilla to make me feel good, but I wasn't feeling good. I... I was doing uni, but I really wasn't wanting to. I'd went with Sarah to the Newcastle appointment that they were like, you're having a honeymoon period of health. And I thought, what? And I remember being so angry that they said my health was a honeymoon period because I literally was sitting there thinking, you think the last six months has been fun. A honeymoon period is meant to be a like two week time to enjoy yourself. And you think that I've been having fun, but I wasn't going to tell them what happened. I wasn't going to tell them that I had tried to talk myself because then they weren't going to give me it. And I went, oh, honeymoon period of health, great. Okay, see you later. And then that inspired, obviously, to write that lung transplant show. And I thought, kept thinking to myself, that one moment that everything was meant to end and I had made, I thought to myself, this has to kill me. And it didn't. And that could be just down to I didn't take enough or that could be down to getting up and being sick and getting at my system. But I thought this was meant to just end it all and something didn't. 
but I still wasn't absorbing it and I thought, I'm not dealing with this yet. So it comes to Christmas and I hit low point really badly. And I feel quite nasty to say this, but my low point for me, because everyone's got their low points, whether it's they want to kill themselves or they, they've been sexually assaulted, you know, my low point for me, funnily enough, was such an odd one that I had been uh, pursued by this guy constantly and I was like I'm not interested I'm not interested because of the age difference and just because we didn't have anything in common and I remember thinking you're infatuated with me but you don't know me but what did I do I went to his absolutely hammered had never slept with him before barely really knew him we were just like sort of acquaintances and we went and he confessed that he loved me and I thought to myself you don't know me you don't know anything about me. And we sat and argued about fucking singers that we didn't get on, like we didn't both like. And, and I just kept sitting thinking to myself, like, what am I doing? Why am I here? But I was there. So I drank loads. I took loads of drugs. I was really ill. Like, I think I just got to the hospital. I had sex with him. And I lay there and I looked at the ceiling during all of it, not at him. I realised he wasn't even looking at me during it. And I looked at the ceiling and thought, God, I, what, I really, this is it, isn't it? If I'm not even enjoying having sex or who I'm with, Jesus Christ, like, where can you go from here? So it was really interesting because... He then said to me, oh, he was so loaded, he had money, he would take care of me, I was ill. And I remember thinking to myself, no one would actually believe this, but I sat and thought to myself, this is a guy I have nothing in common with, right? I thought, okay, we have nothing in common, but you could take care of me. Yeah, maybe I should just give up my work, give up my life. I'll do this show in January, I'll call it my last show. That's it. Because... I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be strong anymore. So maybe you could give me everything I want. And he brought me home and I thought, okay, well, we'll see. And then it was the following night. I'd went back on it, on a night out. I'd went to a night with my friends. I wasn't meant to go. I was meant to be DJing the street, but the street cut shut early. I went a night out. Me and my two pals went. Um, we had an after party at mine. Well... Did we? This is where it gets interesting. We had an after party of mine, and I didn't realise that Alana was working because at that point I was barely speaking to her that much because I'd be constantly out on the sesh, not coping, not wanting to deal with my life. Um, I had told her, Amy and Sarah, I think maybe a month before that, that I had tried to kill myself, and they all... I'll be honest, they all didn't handle it in their own ways. And I don't want to share their thing because that's their thing. But they didn't handle it very well because they just, it came out of nowhere. And they just what when they were like, what do you mean? And they were triggered, they were upset, but they just didn't deal with it well because how were they meant to? No one deals with these things well. And I just remember me and her were on sort of the fence. We were a bit tense, unnaturally. It just was happening, unfortunately. And... She had came through and was like, I have work at nine in the morning and it's half six. Why are you drinking, screaming, making a noise? Come on. And she never spoke back to me. And I remember thinking, I'm glad she has. 
But, you know, she'd said, this is an on, blah, blah. And I remember the first thing I did was go, oh, well, it's my house. And she looked really pissed off. And I thought, oh, God, why have I said that? And she went to bed, and I just said, right, we need to leave. So we found our after party, me and my two pals left. And I came home after that, and I was like, right, I need to sort my life out. And then I was DJing that fucking night for New Year's Eve, and I thought, oh, Jesus Christ. And I was like, right, do you know what? I'm going to have to speak to her before we go out. And I told her, I was like, I don't want to live with you anymore. Now, I remember her thinking, oh, it's because I was really sort of angry at her and I, I hated her because people just get so insecure with these things, upset. Really, so, and I was like, no, 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 this is honestly all on me, not on you. You wanted me not to have the after party and my first instinct was, I want to have one though, so that's a problem because I wasn't factoring your feelings. But long story short, she had moved it. Five weeks later, I went and had dinner with her christened her flat, I guess, for her dinner. I am room pizza wild. And she knew that we were still friends. And I said, yeah. And I made that bold choice that I said, you know what? I'm not well. And a lot of people thought I was fucking crazy letting her move out when I was that ill needing transplant. They were like, are you off your head? You're ill all the time. And, and I was like, well, I, I don't care. I, I, need, I need to live on my own. You don't understand. It has to happen. It feels like it needs to happen. So, and then one week later, when, oh, what's this new drug called Cafeotis, the team? And they go, oh, funny ask, we've actually applied for you on Compassionate Grounds and you're starting it the week of your birthday. And I went, what? That was such an interesting thing to have happened, naturally. I thought, where's that come from? Oh, okay. So I had four weeks that I had to wait for it. And I was like, right, okay. And I, like, basically just was taking care of myself, doing my IVs at home, sort of managing to navigate uni and stuff. I then went in a hospital. At my birthday, I was really ill, but I went in a hospital, and I, I managed to get it done. And I started the drug, and within a week, I was fully not myself. And I thought, that's so interesting. That's just so interesting. Um... And doing this episode for all of you, and every guest, I'll ask the same question. You know, I thought to myself, what was that one moment of hope that really got me to where I am? And it was my attempt at suicide. Because I did it fully aware that, you know what, I have nothing to lose at this point. And something somewhere, whether it was biological response, fight or flight, or it was just the universe or spirituality saved me and didn't let me, despite the fact I wanted to. And that is in no way invalidating people that have sadly lost their lives to say, well, they were meant to die. No, I don't think that at all. I think suicide is a conversation that even if you're having suicide feelings, we should be discussing that and saying how normal actually it is because we all can get depressed and feel that way but I just felt for me that something weirdly happened that that bowl was there. I got up, even though I was practically paralytic. And I think it was the weird thing that I needed Alana and Lena to help me, but they couldn't. So I pushed myself and hoped and went, 
get up, get your body to move, do this, wiggle your fucking big toe, as Uma Furman said in the movie. And after that, I had to lash out, I had to hate, I had to put myself in horrible situations that I wish I hadn't. I had to drunk text exes, see them in CCs. I had to see them in CCs and, and, and feel really distraught and go through all of it because it got me to the point in Christmas when I lay there and thought, who are you, Jordy? What have you become? Why are you doing this to yourself? And weirdly enough, although I didn't enjoy it and I didn't pursue dating him, I'm glad that that guy did pursue me because I felt like I knew that I needed to sort my shit out, because, not because of him, but because of the fact that I didn't love myself. And I probably was so terrible in bed for him because I didn't love myself and I was detached and disconnected and thinking, when's this over? That was a really huge moment where I went, I've had my moment of hope and I've had my rising moment where I need to get a grip of my life before it falls apart. And I wanted to share that with all of you. And I hope it'll help a lot of people realize that I'm very good as an artist, like we all are, to say on social media, things have been bad, but I'm, I'm bashing on, or, you know, I'm the pandemic, I'm doing work and creating work despite it. And, but every time I get spoken to out of work and I get interviewed, I go, it wasn't easy. And on the Twitch House Liability Show, I had spoken about the fact that several drag artists in Edinburgh had been making nasty comments about me on social media, had been like trying to gatekeep me from doing well and, and, and my show potentially happening. And I thought to myself, you don't understand that this hasn't been easy for me. Nothing is handed to you, nothing was handed to me. It got to a point where I wanted to take my own life. And I am still here, which is a thing I'm always grateful for, like we mentioned this season too. But it wasn't the gratitude part, it was the actual glimmer of hope that the pandemic has been bringing for people. And that is what set me apart and helped me keep going. And I'd said on the Twitch show, you know, if my own lungs couldn't stop me doing this, bitter drag queens and drag kings or artists aren't. That really was the crutch of that. I hope obviously this hasn't really affected people in, in difficult ways. If you want to reach out to me and mention your own story or you also want to just say you heard my story and, and whatever, like of course I'm not, I'm not in any way uh, not at peace with this now. I've made a lot of peace with this. And I know my boundary of where I hit my rock bottom and my glimmer of hope moment that I always think of that I was at that point and I'm not like that now so I can keep going. And I'd like to end with a quote because at the start I talked about dating and rejection. And you know, I think I'm gonna say I thank that guy for sending me bullet pointed reasons that he didn't wanna be with me because that was the lowest expectation that I will have from a man from now on, that if they were to text me something like that, they are not good for me, and they are not someone I wanna be around. But I did mention dating and how this rejection can hurt you. And one of the things I always say is, you, anytime you are upset from rejection, 
and you are feeling really down, there's usually a deep-rooted cause. I am now actually looking to go back to uni to study and become a counsellor, because I think I would suit that. I want to try and be you know, a drag therapist on telly, lol. But genuinely, there's always a deeper meaning and a deeper cause. And I spent my whole life being told by guys, you know, it's not that deep. Every single guy, one of the ones that really destroyed me, actually nearly destroyed me, and I was not coping for a few weeks. In February was when I told a guy that I actually really liked in the summer that I really wanted to get back with him, and I thought that maybe this was the right time because I'd had my first vaccine, and we became friends, and we had, we had so much in common. And I'd said to him, you know, he'd matched me on Tinder, and I thought, has oh, he done that on purpose or for a joke? And he had said to me, oh, do you not match your friends on Tinder? Ha <laughs> ha. And I thought, oh, fuck's sake, okay. Um, and I had said, you know, in a lovely voice, not, you know, I was really upset by that because. I didn't match you for fun. And he said, oh, it's not that deep. Don't look into it. And I thought to myself, why have I been told that my whole life? And that's not on him. That's on I have been told that my whole life. I meant it's not that deep. Don't read into it. And things are that deep. Maybe not for you, but for the other person. But for me, all those rejections between January and March did really help me in a way. And like I said, I have that lower standard from that guy. And I want to end with Afternoon Delight for this episode before the music plays and it's finished with a quote that I always use my quotes. You know, Madonna has inspired me my whole life, genuinely, and Dress You Up will always have a special place for me that I watch that anytime I feel really low and I want to feel like I can do this like she did despite her sexual assault and nearly being killed. I watch her do that video and I go, I am going to do this, I'm going to achieve it. And one of my favorite quotes that she ever said that I'm gonna end the episode with now is, power is being told you are not loved and not being destroyed by it. And I've maybe been told that a lot in my life, but I have definitely not been destroyed by it.